90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we are joined by returning guest, writer and director Joe Cornish, the filmmaker behind Attack the Block, The Kid Who Would Be King, and now Lockwood and Co., the new Netflix series. Hello, Joe. Welcome back. Hello, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's very good to be back. We did an episode, listeners, around four years ago on Evil Dead 2. Do go and check it out. It's, it's still available on the pod feed in this very room at the Ritzy Cinema. We're, we're back, I think, literally in the same seats as, as a little while ago. And I think, you know, weirdly, the film we're going to talk about today, I think, is an interesting companion piece to Evil Dead 2 because it's another independent horror movie. It's another super low-budget horror movie. It's another sort of uh, handcrafted film by a very small group of passionate people and it's another very inventive and innovative horror movie but it's it's sort of the opposite because if evil dead 2 was a sort of maximalist horror movie that's a very fashionable contemporary word to use right maximalist cinema it's full of technique and invention and visual style and a kind of crazy flick book of techniques then the movie we're going to talk about today is the opposite. It's a minimalist horror film. It's sustained takes and silences and longers and and very open and airy and um, yeah. So minimalist versus maximalist, and this time it's minimalist. When we last spoke, I think The Kid Who Would Be King, your your second film, had just come out. Yes. Um, and, uh, and we had a little natter about that. But you've been busy over the last uh, few years making a whole series for Netflix. For It's called Lockwood & Co. And it's out right now as you're listening to this. That's right. It, it came out on January the 27th on Netflix all over the world. It's a supernatural action-adventure series based on the books by Jonathan Stroud. It's about a Britain plagued by ghosts where young people can sense ghosts sooner and better than grown-ups. Therefore, an industry of ghost-hunting agencies has evolved, run by adults. But there is one agency run with no adult supervision. It's called Lockwood & Co., and that is what the show is about. I've been lucky to see the first episode, and I really liked, actually, you don't... It's it's not sort of said with a a voiceover or sort of a, a title card or anything, but you can see that... It's not society hasn't developed in the way that it has. This is an alternate reality. And you have a really great shot of Piccadilly Circus looking like it did in the 70s. Yes. Sort of uh, mid 80s was the reference. Yeah. In Lockwood and Co, because this ghost epidemic happened in some time about 50 years ago, the idea is that technological development and industry switched to a different track. The country re-industrialized because base metals can repel ghosts. So people started getting into smelting, people started to getting into into ghost prevention science, pseudoscience. <laughs> so so it's it's set now, but in a different sort of now. And and for reference, we did go back to the mid-80s, a, a pre-digital time when um, the cars weren't designed on computers and 
and yes, yeah, so we, we, we do this sequence where our heroine, Lucy Carlyle, comes to London for the first time and she walks down Piccadilly. Uh, what's now Waterstones has become a ghost fighting equipment shop and all the lights are like they were in the mid-80s, but they've now got adverts for ghost hunting agencies. And yeah, we went through every detail. We put the old dustbins back. We put the pavements back where they used to be in the mid-80s. We put the dividing rails in the street back. So that is, yeah, that's a sort of edited version, retro version of Piccadilly Circus. It was fun to do. I think I, I sort of just appreciated how good the whole thing looks. Like, there's a big production value. First episode I watched was uh, shot by Tom Townend, uh, DOP you've worked with before on Attack the Block and who's done so much good work. Yeah, he shot You Were Never Really Here, the yes. Lynn Ramsey movie. Yeah. And yeah, we worked Under together. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Have you? Has someone done it? Someone has done that. Very good. I must listen to that. He's he's a genius, and yeah, he his first feature film was um, Attack the Block, so it was fantastic. You know, it wasn't too shabby working with Bill Pope on The Kid Who Would Be King, but it was <laughs> lovely to reunite with Tom. And you know, he's so brilliant at all photography, but he's particularly gifted shooting at night, and of course, that's when the ghosts come out and when the action kicks off in Lockwood & Co. Some good lighting as well, lots of like practical uh, bits and bobs going on. Obviously, the ghosts are sort of glowing entities in, in Lockwood & Co. And, um, yeah, the really sort of stunning uh, design. must be quite hard to sort of bring a ghost to life. Is, is that sort of a, a tricky visual effects challenge? Yeah, it was. We did multiple passes. So the, the, the thing about Lockwood & Co. is the ghosts uh, get involved in fights because... One of the great ideas that Jonathan Stroud had is that a ghost can touch you if it kills you. So ghosts come for you and attempt to, it's a bit like, you know, uh, a jellyfish. If one of its tentacles had a lethal sting, they charge at you and, and, and try and get you. So we can't just have ghosts as a sort of arm's length spectral thing. We've got to involve them in in action sequences. So we had you know, illuminated dummies on sticks on stage. In fact, we had a very brilliant puppeteer who worked on, who did BB-8 on oh, Force nice. Awakens and stuff, very used to standing around on sets in a very tight green suit, holding things on the end of sticks. And then we had a brilliant performer on wires doing all the physical movement who was a sort of Cirque du Soleil. I'm not sure whether she was Cirque du Soleil, but she might well have been, She's, you know, bouncing between walls and doing flips and swooping and diving. And then we had a third performer to be the face, to do facial capture. And in fact, then we had other performers to do different vocal work. So, and that's only one ghost. There's a bunch of ghosts in the in the series. But yeah, it was uh, it was a very laborious process, but hopefully it paid off. I really liked how the ghosts sort of... Uh form sort of from corners or bits you sort of see like the light emerging and sort of like a dusty sort of shape and then a figure and it's quite tense good well that was the intention you know we looked at a lot of victorian spirit photography there was a brilliant exhibition in london 10 or 15 years ago called the perfect medium of big exhibition of victorian uh ghost photography you know ectoplasm coming out of people's mouths and peculiar double exposures and stuff that people at the turn of the century thought were, was 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 real um and it has this very uh particular feel to it it feels chemical it feels physical it feels like it's actually happening in the room in a sort of weird pseudoscientific way so yeah we tried to make a kind of logic that all the ghosts would adhere to it's nice if there are rules that are clearly enough thought through that there's enough variety within them 
So we have a bunch of rules. You know, they can. They're all made of 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 uh, ectoplasm. They're all made of smoke that can be different thicknesses, different densities, move with different um, levels of turbulence. They can be different colors. Anyway, you don't want to know the rules, but trust me, there are rules. We were talking about coming back on the podcast, and I I got to ask a question. I don't. We haven't we haven't had too many returning guests on, but what? other under 90 minute film would you like to talk about and how did you you know what went through your head did you have something sort of in mind right away or did you go and do do a little bit of homework no i did i went to the letterbox page that your podcast has and i looked through to see what other people had done and i did have a little short list but i couldn't believe that nobody else had done this movie the original 1978 halloween directed by john carpenter because it is such a famous influential and important horror film and so I am nabbing it. Thank you very much for bringing Halloween into the into the pod. I think John Carpenter did quite a few under ninety minutes or like ninety minute long films, and we haven't had any on really? the show. I feel like the fog might be in that bracket, right? And, uh, and a few well, the fog famously time. he wasn't happy with, and I think it came in too short. Ah, so okay. he went back and shot a bunch of of other stuff but yeah he's a mean lean and efficient dude uh he doesn't mess around he's interested in telling the story but you know halloween is uh is it that it's not the most sequeled film is it must be up there. it's got 13 or 14 i Oof. think halloween movies but i it might not be as many as friday the 13th we think based on our internet research halloween overtakes friday the 13th i think it does yeah, long going one or and two movies. Still, still a going concern. The last film came out just last year. Yeah, Halloween ends. Halloween ends. But has it really ended? Probably not. Probably not. Be it's, more like, right it's like a rock band <laughs> that are constantly doing their final concert, isn't it? When did you first watch Halloween? Originally released in 1978, but has this legacy and was released on VHS. I'm sure it must have had a, a life at cinemas, um, you know, coming back uh, every year, as, as, as which is the joy of a horror film. You get good yeah, on cinema you know player what? of I, one. I do not remember when I first saw it. It's almost like, you know, uh, Oliver or um, I'm trying to think of another really famous children's story where you can't really discern or Peter Pan, you can't really tell. When you first heard it, it seems to have been there all my life. I would have been too young for it when it first came out. So I think I probably encountered it on VHS. And because it's a beautiful widescreen movie, it's one of those movies that has kept, you know, it's revisitable because it keeps coming out in better and better quality. And because I never saw it theatrically, I'm sort of working my way backwards in time towards the theatrical experience. You see it probably on a black and white TV in four by three, then you see it in color, then you see it in widescreen on VHS, then you see it in widescreen on DVD, and then you see it on, uh, in, on, in 4K, and then eventually you see it projected. And because, it be, because it's such an experiential movie, it's 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 like a first person shooter. It's not really like a first person shooter, but it's so interested in POVs and widescreen POVs and kind of like looking through a window, looking through windows. Literally, the the characters are looking through windows the whole time. The screen when you watch the movie is like a massive window. So that clarity is really important, and uh, it means the film. When you see it in these different clarities, it becomes better and better and better. You're, you're actually, every time you revisit it, you're actually getting a better 
experience a, a better sort of delivery system of what it's trying to do. I watched it on 4K uh, ahead of this uh, chat and it was the first time seeing it in 4K and, and it's been cleaned up so well. It, I, I definitely notice so much more detail uh, than I've ever seen before and it's a film I've seen a lot. There's an amazing bit where John Carpenter's cigarette smoke drifts through the frame. Did you notice that? I did not notice that. It's just <laughs> after that sort of double bluff where Michael Myers is standing behind the hedge and then one of the girls runs up to see to to talk to him and he's not there anymore and if you watch a little bit of cigarette smoke drifts in from frame left and it's carpenter's siggy just standing um he's a good advert, advert for smoking that man isn't he absolutely he still seems he's like david hockney he still seems to be going strong and he's absolutely puffing like thomas the tank engine isn't he and maybe he's given up now but even maybe. on the commentary for the halloween which was done decades ago he sounds like a man with emphysema but he's still um going strong still so. going did the scores for the new um halloween films and, and was yeah, sort of involved yeah, yeah. Uh, there i think that opening scene in this film the uh, sort of young michael myers pov it's it's so iconic and it really holds up like i i feel like i know that scene beat for beat really well but i was still gripped last night uh re-watching it uh, again and um it, it like that's a great way to establish a character You're talking about that roving pov shot of the kid as he watches his sister with her boyfriend. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, I'd say even before that, that opening dolly into the pumpkin tells you that this is a different kind of a film, a film with a certain amount of control and and um, self-possession. The fact that you're, it, you know, it opens with a sustained shot that just pushes and pushes and pushes into that pumpkin, apparently shot in the same garage, literally the garage of a house, one of those houses they were shooting in, the same garage where they shoot the interior of the car with Dr. Loomis and the nurse at the beginning. So, because this is a very low-budget movie. It's a sort of homemade movie in a way. It's his third movie, right, after Dark Star yes, and Assault yeah. on Precinct 13. And he is a very hands-on, practical filmmaker, having come, you know, Dark Star's a, like, a, like a proper garage movie, a, mo a sci-fi movie made in your garage. Assault on Precinct 13 is all one location. And he expands his precinct very... He shoots a bunch in South Pasadena and then a little bit in in Hollywood uh, for Halloween. But it's he's still shooting in garages and houses and there's no set builds. It's all on locations. So that very first shot is in a garage in the dark. Um, the art director's carved out that pumpkin and it's that slow uh, dolly into the eye and then it's the way the music starts and it's like a kind of uh, clockwork toy and it's it's just got a deliberate uh mechanical motion that that immediately grabs you and makes you um and sort of expresses the inevitability of the doom that's coming down the track doesn't it it's like a machine it's like a sort of production line starting up winding it up is a is a good analogy you start as an audience member be like oh something's happening we're going yeah, somewhere i yeah. don't know where he's taking us we're on this like mad roller yeah, coaster exactly now. like a roller coaster going up the incline before it goes before it goes down the first and it's really propulsive and yeah and then it goes into the shot you're you're talking about which is an incredible roving pov shot shot on a panaglide so this is a, a movie that's taking advantage of steadicam technology that's still fairly nascent at the time 
I think it's been like heavily used on uh, Exorcist 2 and Days of Heaven. We're pre-Shining, aren't we? Yes, yeah. So um, it's still in its early days, the use... This is a Panaglide, which is Panavision's knockoff of the Steadicam. But but the movie uses it a lot. Like loads of stuff is shot on, on that Panaglide. And yeah, it starts with that incredible POV of the boy watching his uh, sister, who's supposed to be babysitting him, but is having uh, naughty times with her boyfriend and kind of neglecting the boy. And yeah, he wanders around the house, looks in the window, goes around the back, walks into the house. I think a couple of hidden edits. There's the incredible moment where he put he picks up that the mask and puts it on the little clown mask, where there's a hidden cut. But that's, you know, I think that sort of thing was done in Peeping Tom, right? Mm-hmm. The other movie people talk about that I've never seen is Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Have you ever seen that? No, but we have done an episode on Silent Night, Deadly Night, which right. was also sort of comes up in the same conversation, but a bit later. A uh, bit later, post-Halloween. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's people say that Halloween borrows from um, Black Christmas that, that, that is one of the sort of um, precursors to the slasher genre, which Halloween is supposedly the sort of first official slasher movie because it's pre friday the 13th the first pure slasher sets up the tropes um anyway that moment of of having a roving pov and then putting something that occludes the point of view a little bit you know in movies you're used to having a shot of someone picking up binoculars and then you cut to the binocular pov and then you cut back to them holding the binoculars you don't usually just get the pov and the binoculars being lifted into the pov and then sort of going onto the eye and that's a really strong moment, I think. It just sort of reinforces that you are looking at the world through the eyes of someone. You don't know that this person is about to go and kill somebody uh, then, but it makes you even more invested in, in sort of whose eyes you're in. And then, like, as soon as the mask is on, then the knife comes out and, uh, and he yeah, commits and his first murder. Yeah, that weird stabby moment where everything's slightly out of alignment. Yeah, it's really weird. It's, it seems like a very small hand of his yeah. uh, in frame to do the And it's the not stabbing. really stabbing in the right place or direction no. to hit where it's supposed to be hitting. And then when the, when the actress falls onto the ground, the blood is sort of in the slightly the wrong place in her body but nevertheless you get what's happened yeah no i I feel like i guess it's a bit of a filmmaking sort of trope you know it's implying a bit like in psycho you know the knife doesn't go in and and all that sort of stuff that that in in the shower scene it sort of feels like you know they're they're indicating that the character is now dead (laughs) yeah and you know i never took i i never really i'm not a massive psycho fan like i appreciate it but i never really because it's a bit old I could never really feel it was a film about my time or about a world that I knew. So so for me, Halloween is that film. Like that would have been the first time in my life I would have seen a film where I'm op- occupying the POV of a killer and I'm being asked to vicariously experience what it would be like to suddenly stab somebody to death (laughs) and it's a really strong moment i mean Mm. you don't know that it's a child at that point either do you that reveal happens in a a couple of shots later with that big crane back but yeah i'm not i don't know where i'm going with this suffice to say thinking back it 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 must have been it's strong medicine and it makes you think wow people are capable of doing this am i capable of doing this someone's capable of putting this on film is this supposed to be entertaining well it kind of is compelling should i be compelled by it like so it's immediately putting you in this peculiar moral position and also because the shots are so sustained 
And again, on the on the commentary on the movie, they talk about that just being a result of limited budget. So to fit your run, you you just don't have that time for that many setups. You know, time it take every time you move the camera, you got to move the lights, you got to change everything, and once you've got it all set up, you know that's your golden time to shoot as much as you can. So they've they've set up these incredibly elaborate moving shots. Apparently, crew members are like hiding in shadows and moving lights as the camera. It's this huge choreographed ballet just to let the camera move through this seemingly empty space. Anyway, so the shots are really long, which really, you know, watching it again, it it feels like a Michael Haneke. It feels like, um, you know, funny games, Mm -hmm. you know, the second half of funny games when the boy is hiding in the house. Or it feels like a Dardem Brothers movie or almost a Richard Linklater movie because the takes are so long. And there's lots of like walking and talking shots, uh, you know, people on streets around Haddonfield with the camera following them. And... But you couldn't get away with that few cuts in the, in the opening of a movie. It's asking a level of immersion and concentration from an audience that I don't think contemporary filmmakers would have the confidence to ask. No, and maybe that's one of the reasons it's so timeless. You know, it's still a, a spectacle. Um, yeah, I think to see this, obviously, it was forced on them by budget constraints. But now we're sort of appealing. They've they've done some some proper cinema wizardry uh, that we're still enjoying. Yeah, even though Carpenter's very unpretentious about it, right? He just says, "I wanted to make an exploitation movie." Like he he resists any thematic in- readings or interpretations because there's lots of scholarly writing about it. He's very boot and braces about it. He just says, "You know, we were we wanted to make a fantastically scary horror film." on a small budget so whenever you whenever whenever anybody comes up with any highfalutin theorizing he always just brings it back to the fundamental practicalities time money the equipment they had you know but it's a really strong opening and then nothing happens for until minute 55 yeah (laughs) a dog dies you don't really see that you just see its little hairy legs going limp Um, but nothing happens for 55 minutes but yet you know something's going to happen. So it's that amazing suspense thing of, um, you know, nothing's happening, but everything's happening. The next thing you see is 15 years later, and uh, I think we have Donald Pleasance in the car with a nurse uh, just sort of outlying, you know, this guy is evil. And he's got some really great speeches. I, I really love all of Donald Pleasance's lines yes. uh, in, in this film. But John Carpenter talks about being really frightened of him. Because I don't think he'd worked with any famous actors previously. He's always working with, you know, uh, not particularly famous people or friends or people he knows um, or first timers. So Pleasance is the first big, big, big actor he's worked with. Pleasance is only doing it because his daughter's in a rock band and his daughter really liked the soundtrack to Assault on Precinct 13. Who wouldn't? And that's been a sort of festival hit. Um, In fact... Michael Myers apparently is named after one of the English promoters who promoted, um, did you read that? Who promoted Assault and Precinct 13 around festivals. Oh, amazing. His name was Michael Myers. <laughs> so that's why he's named. That's why that character. It was kind of peculiar, th- peculiar tribute to pay to your name. What, what a legacy that guy's got now. <laughs> an, an inhuman, soulless killing machine. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so he's intimidated by Donald Pleasance and and you can sort of sense that a little bit because he Donald says Donald Pleasant seems kind of pissed off and genuinely wants to just get this over is concerned really profoundly concerned about what Michael Myers is going to do the other great thing about this movie is it, it weirdly reminds me of Terminator 2 in the way that it's set in the Los you know shot in the Los Angeles suburbs 
uh, particularly the opening stuff in 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 Terminator Two with Eddie Furlong and his little friend robbing robbing the um, the automated bank thingy, and uh, and also the the um, dry riverbed chase, the use of of shot POV shot, the very clear geography, the LA streets, and then also what Cameron does in Terminator One and Terminator Two. It, it's like a dominoes movie. So you've got three lines of dominoes mm -hmm. that are all going to intersect like one of those great YouTube videos. <laughs> so there's 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 Donald Pleasance's character, there's Laurie Strode and her friends, and there's Michael Myers. And those three domino chains are just set in motion at the beginning. They don't intersect. They're just toppling separately and you're cutting between them. But the momentum that's caused by those inciting incidents, you know, the start of the school day for Laurie and the babysitting jobs, uh, uh, Dr. Loomis turning up at the mental hospital and then Michael Myers escaping. The momentum just keeps going forward in a very simple way until they all intersect and, in, and, and, and interweave. But it's such a lovely en energy knowing that the filmmaker understands you know has planned what's good the intricacies ahead of what how these things are going to intersect but at the moment they're just very sort of elegant and simple and linear it's also crazy how much work he puts into i forgot how much screen time he puts into setting up where he got where he gets his blue boiler suit where he gets the rope where he gets the car where he gets the mask all those it's almost like like in star wars movies they have to go back and tell you where han solo got his pistol in solo but in halloween or every single you know every single plot point is very very carefully built and owns a scene like very simple scenes like the hardware store oh he stole a rope and uh what else does he steal an axe or something? It's like knives and rope. It must be right. kids. Definitely right. kids That's who did right. this. Not the guy from the insane. A couple asylum. of things that don't make sense. I do not know how he, when he steals that, the headstone, mm, his yes. sister's headstone, how's he carrying that around? Where's he putting that? We, we sort of, know that these these d disparate storylines are happening um and everyone's quite close together like you know people walk past michael myers but don't properly sort of see him and loomis sort of goes past him at one point and laurie sort of walks past loomis but we don't they don't know how important they are to each other until the very very end yeah and and, and when you think about making it he shot it in three weeks it cost something like three hundred twenty thousand dollars made 70 million uh, in hell. that first release one of the most profitable independent films ever made but he would have, he would never have returned to the same location twice so he'd he'd set up his camera like for instance the point of view from one house to the other and then he would fire off every single shot he needed from there and you can see the camera returning to the same setups sometimes 10 15 20 minutes later but the precision with which he would have had to break down the script and the surety that he had about what shots he needed and what was happening in those shots it's really incredible like like it's really on point and i don't think he's storyboarding he's just shot listing um so when you look at the movie in terms of returning to different camera positions it's really impressive how beautifully it all choreographs and fits together i met him 15 years ago i, I was told there was nothing left no reason no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face, and 
the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Doesn't feel like a film made in the late seventies. It just feels like you know this is one of the all-time great horror movies, and it's got I guess the period setting, but the narrative-wise, it's fresh, and and that's probably why the film's been remade and sequeled and rebooted. You know, but so I don't much. think it was received as that initially. It took a while to make the money that it made, and it got a very mixed critical response. I jotted down a thing that was just on Wikipedia, Pauline Kael's review from the New Yorker. She says. Maybe when a horror film is stripped of everything but dumb scariness, it satisfies part of the audience in a more basic, childish way than sophisticated horror pictures do. So she hates it. She gives it a very scathing review. But I think she actually inadvertently says what's brilliant about it. When a horror film is stripped of everything but scariness. Because it really is so minimalist. It's stripped of everything... Like, I, I watched it before, when I made Attack the Block, I, w I got paranoid about dialogue, about writing really good dialogue. And there's so many film courses and, uh, you know, essays and stuff you can read about great film dialogue and, um, and you know, great 40s and 50s films with firecracker dialogue and brilliant turns of phrases. And I was like, how the f I, I don't know if I can do that without, how can you do that stuff and make it sound naturalistic, make the characters real? And I, w I watched Halloween and it was really liberating because they are just saying inconsequential things. They're saying real things. And one of the things that probably made it a hit is not only is it shot like a kind of uh, experiential first person immersive experience, but everyone's just behaving incredibly naturalistically. They're not saying clever rhyming things. They're not doing wordplay or jokes or puns or elaborate, carefully crafted dialogue. It's just completely naturalistic stuff about girlfriends, boyfriends, dates, being late, making arrangements, going to see one person, borrowing clothes. And for me, that's better because it feels completely real. And you really you really care about those these girls because their lives feel completely real. Like probably, comparatively speaking, less so now because the older it gets, the more dated the trousers and the technology and the hairstyles and stuff. But even if I would have seen it in the, if I saw it in the early 80s on VHS, wouldn't have been far off from, you know, the world I lived in. And when people saw it, it would have been an absolute slice of life, a direct sort of mirror of the life of an average American teenage girl in a way that Psycho wasn't, in a way that Black Christmas wasn't, you know, all those other films that are cited as precursors, The Spiral Staircase or 40s stuff, they're more high storytelling, aren't they? Or any, any Agatha Christie, you know, people talk about Ten Little Indians and stuff as a precursor to slashers, but they're all much more mannered, much more um, high concept storytelling. They're not these sort of, um, these sort of Dardenne brothers style, immersive, mm. you know, Larry Clark type wandering around suburban streets with kids talking about nothing. I think it's such a good thing for the audience to, you know, we start getting invested in their social calendars and, you know, their, their Halloween plans and who's babysitting who and who's dating who and, and stuff. And it's such a good way to sort of slightly take your eye off of Donald Pleasance and Michael Myers and 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 then when they do show up, it's even more impactful. But I love how much detail and time has gone into 
like the politics of their relationships and spilling drink on yourself or spilling the butter on yourself like all this sort of yeah. stuff to, and like you know having to dump the kids off here and all that sort of stuff because you do you do get properly invested in it you do and it becomes a life or death situation all these little banal things like who's in which house whether oh you look after this kid as well so i can cop off with my boyfriend mm. which cars where the relationships of the houses the telephones that's that, that are very important in the movie start as these innocuous communication devices where the girls are trying to find out where each other where they're at and then end up being you know a terrifying prop when Laurie hears one of the other girls being killed and she's not sure what she's heard and then she has to go over to the other house to investigate which is when the incredible like 15-20 minute climax kicks in um, so all these little banal things that are set up all have massive uh, life or death import later and even though it's observational and relaxed it's very tense and very sinister because A, you're always cutting between the three plots, between Michael between um, Donald Pleasance and between the girls and B, the way he invests these open uh, um, sort of uh, street shots with lots of menace by putting the camera at Michael's shoulder, hiding him around corners, seeing him in the distance. So he has this presence in those streets from really early on. And I remember that being super powerful, like, like the idea that I think Halloween more than any other films felt like it could happen to me when mm -hmm. I saw it because it was so quiet and sort of voyeuristic and banal. The idea and, and it started you thinking is I remember thinking when I watched it as a kid, well, what would I do? Who would I run to? How would I get out of the house? What neighbor would I go to? What if they weren't in, especially with a big knife? Growing up in South London, that's what you're frightened of, <laughs> is knives. You're not really frightened of chainsaws and guns or elaborate uh, execution-style inventive kills. You're frightened of a person with a knife coming to get you. He's yeah. a great monster because it is, you know, it, it could happen in, in a sort of a different form, but he is someone who is so intent on murdering people, <laughs> you know. Like yeah. He is this immovable force, and he can do it with a basic household option. It also means that he has always got a weapon, basically. Every house he goes into, he could always, like, retool. I think that maybe comes up in later sort of Halloween films. He doesn't need, like, his signature chainsaw or something, you know. he's he's He can just keep coming for you. He's utilitarian, hence the boiler suit, yeah. Absolutely. He's, he's like a sort of uh, utility worker, a plumber or an electrician, only he's going to fi fix your death. <laughs> he's going to come and fix all your problems by killing you. Like if you've got a really bad backup in your toilet, well, just die. You know, that's all your problems will be over after he visits. We also get that great title at the beginning of the film, Introducing Jamie Lee Curtis. And, and she gives such a wonderful performance uh, throughout this movie. She does. It's her, her, it's her first... Uh, lead role. She's uh, she's obviously the daughter of very famous parents, Janet Lee from Psycho and Tony Curtis. So she's a Hollywood child. She's a nepo baby. <laughs> There's, she tells a story on the commentary of Ray Stark calling up her mum to say, "Oh, you should be in The Exorcist." When she was about twelve or thirteen, and her mum saying, "No way is my daughter being in that movie." But she's been in Quincy and Buck Rogers and all these uh, Charlie's Angels. So as a child, a teenage actress, she's a sort of um, doing bit parts in TV shows. And yeah, and then this is her first her first big movie. She's got a weirdly adult face. Mm. 
And she, I always think she looks about she looks about thirty two in it. I think she's the youngest cast member, but she she's uh, 19, the girls, but yeah. she um, she's the yeah. only teenager. But, but they she all looks... they all look about they all look like mums to me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. But um, but yeah, she's beautiful and really brilliant in it, and and having to do nothing a lot of the time, you know, having to just walk and talk and hit marks and and run and scream and which is tough if you if you you know that sort of acting is really difficult because days are long when you make films and to have to you know before you before you say action you have to get the actors into the right place psychologically and energetically and it can be exhausting to do that to start and stop and start and stop and start and stop that level of hysteria or that that tempo of breathing and yeah, she's she's incredibly good, especially with some of the weird choices she's asked to make, like dropping knives and just sitting right next to the body of someone who's attempted <laughs> to kill you with your back to them and recovering, giving them plenty of time to reanimate and come and get you. But she's completely convincing in all of it. But she also has to do a lot of her scenes with younger performers, like because she is the babysitter in the group, and she has lots of dialogue scenes with is it Tommy, yeah, uh, the boy uh, and Linda, I think, and they um and like that's that's a whole different sort of acting when you're doing those sort of you know day to day that dialogue stuff's scenes. really good, like <laughs> them watching the thing from another world and Forbidden oh, yes. Planet on the yeah. TV uh, with those kids is brilliant, and there's a whole sort of other there's a whole that whole thing with the boy thinking it's the boogeyman. In fact, the word boogeyman is used so much, you would have thought it would have been called the boogeyman. Do you know what I mean? Predating Uli Lamel's 80s slasher classic. Yeah, they use that term. They never call him the shape or anything like that. You would have thought it could be, it would be called that. But then, you know, when you read about it, it turns out the producers wanted, you know, thought of the name of the film and they had the concept before they bought it to Carpenter. And, and part of the idea apparently comes from the idea of Halloween being a time when evil spirits return to come and harangue the living. And that's what Michael Myers is, basically, isn't he? He's an, an evil spirit sort of re, re, set free for that night to visit terror on, the, on sinners. I thought you were babysitting to me. The only reason she babysits is to have oh, a place shit. To... I forgot my chemistry book. So who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book and my, let's see, my French book and, well, who needs books anyway? I don't need books. I, I always forget all of my books. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't really matter if you have your books or not. Hey, isn't that Devon Graham? I don't think so. I think he's cute. Hey, jerk! Speed kills! I love the sort of yeah the last 10 15 minutes you mentioned the sort of proper haunted house uh, sort of thing where Michael Myers is uh, literally he finally meets Laurie and, and is chasing them and there's some really great sets uh, set pieces in there bodies uh, falling out of corridors and and like out of the ceiling and behind wardrobes and yeah one of them strung up above the door another one's in a cupboard that, and that became a very familiar trope of uh, stalk and slash movies where where like um all the prizes that the contestant has won during the quiz are laid out on a table at the end before the big money game kind of thing. You know, it, what's weird about that, watching it again, is nothing triggers it. Nothing triggers that body falling through out of the doorframe. Nothing makes that cupboard open. So it's all sort of, um, but you don't question that really. 
It still makes me jump now. I know it's coming. And, and like last night, I still... Uh... Well, the key, the, the most famous moment is when he pins the boy up against the door and then stands back and tilts his head. But yeah, that whole 20 minutes is... That whole last 20 minutes in an 80-minute film. So you've had the, the sort of five-minute opening sequence. Then you have got 50 minutes of... 45 minutes of suspense in which the audience is ahead of the characters which is a big thing in writing and filmmaking you know to what degree do you want your audience to be in the same have the same information as your protagonist does and in screenwriting if your if your reader gets ahead of the characters it's seen as a dangerous thing you know oh they're way ahead of you know the viewers will be way ahead of the characters they'll be bored of the film but in a suspense movie, the fact that you know but they don't is absolutely the fuel in the engine keeping it going. So you know these girls, you know, Laurie, Laurie doesn't believe it, right? She's yeah. And she's weirdly talking about needing a boyfriend. They think her glimpses of Michael Myers are sort of weird repressed fantasies of, oh, she just she's just seeing boys everywhere now kind of thing. So, yeah, it's that sort of inexorable tilt towards the inevitable in that central 45 minutes and then the final 20 minutes is this right 45 plus 5 is 50 60 70 80 yeah that's about right yep 45 50 minutes and yeah and then and then from the moment that she first discovers the bodies you do start this inc incredible sort of home alone if home alone was set in two houses that incredible sequence ping-ponging between the houses and up the stairs and in, in in you know in between rooms and the choreography is so brilliant and uh again the time it takes her to walk from one house to the other when he's following her walking slowly that just in his the inexorable pace is so fantastically choreographed it's it's really powerful isn't it and, and the bit where she's in the cupboard predating the shining where he's uh like like smashing through the little slats of the wardrobe and the fiddliness of how she gets him. She's attacking him with these, with with like a wire coat hanger. Yeah, the pointy bit. That's kind of physical, <laughs> which, which we all know what that feels like to untwist, yeah. to untwist a metal coat hanger, and then how wobbly and fiddly and 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 how if you don't get it straight enough or push it properly, it wouldn't go in. And the knitting needle she attacks him with as well. It's really visceral, isn't it? And uh, like more domestic household items at play, you know. Yeah. Uh, there, I really like her plan. Like she goes into the bedroom and she opens the the balcony doors or whatever, like making it look like she's escaped, and then hides in the in the thing. But it's not enough for old Michael. He knows. He knows. He where does she know. Is. He's an, he's a funny character, isn't he? Like I always thought it would be fun to make a movie. Okay, I'm copywriting this as I say it. Don't anybody else do this? To make a movie from the POV of that killer. Because he seems very uh, blank and psychotic and, and characterless and empty. But he does one or two quite stylish things. He puts the glasses on oh, top yes. of the sheet when he comes to taunt the girl in the bed, uh, which is an interesting bit of flair, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I think that that still is so sort of iconic and, and like quite funny but also horrific but it would be horrific if he just it would it's horrific to stand there under the sheet and not to know it's not the person you think mm. it is but does it make it extra horrific or silly that he's actually that michael myers okay so so you'd think that the, that's a silly thing the boyfriend might do yeah. 
but that Michael Myers has actually thought, oh, this is a silly thing the boyfriend might do and put the glasses on. What do you think, Sam Clements? Yeah. Do you think if you'd been standing on the set that day, apparently that was uh, Deborah Hill's uh, idea. And, she, you know, she's an amazing producer, produced a lot of incredible films and I think deserves to be spoken about you know, when we talk about this film, because it was a real collaboration. Mm. The whole co-writer thing, on this, wasn't she, as well, I think? Co-writer yeah. and co-wrote a bunch of his films. Mm. And if you look, she went on to form a production company and produce all sorts of incredible films. Dean Cundy, who shot it, oh, goes yeah. on to shoot Back to the Future and Jurassic Park and, and an incredible litany of brilliant movies. Nick Castle, who is playing Mike Myers, went on to become a director, directed The Boy Who Could Fly and The Last Starfighter, you know, was one of John Carpenter's mates. So there's a team of really incredible people all mucking in on this mm. movie, everybody doing everything. Again, on the commentary, they t uh, Jamie Lee Curtis talks about how they all whitewashed that house. Oh, wow. So the decrepit house in which Michael Myers once lived, the sequence the movie opens with was the last thing they shot. So they shot all the decrepit stuff. Then the whole crew, including Jamie Lee Curtis and all the actors, got pots of paint and whitewashed it to make it look new so they could shoot the opening sequence that's incredible but anyway if you were standing on that set and deborah hill came up to you with that idea would you you'd go for the glasses on top of the sheet it is a bit of a flourish um at that point i don't know that i but, would but i'm uh, glad that they did because it's really disconcerting isn't it i think it's yeah i i I'm probably the same you don't know it isn't right for the character but actually it also gives you something to sort of look at as an audience member and and i think it probably like it makes that the the girl in the bed you know at most vulnerable she can be you know she thinks it's her boyfriend playing a, a joke she's not alarmed at all by this figure uh yes in the thing. it puts so that, an extra bit of credulity onto the onto that figure it sort of adds to the, yeah, adds yeah, to the yeah. horror. I mean, weirdly, you know, because people talk about Michael Myers being completely kind of catatonic mm. with only one intention in his brain. John Carpenter shot a whole bunch of extra scenes when he sold the movie to TV to make it fit a two-hour running time oh, because wow, it yes. was 90 minutes or less. He had to get it out of your podcast <laughs> and make it in ineligible. So there's a bunch of scenes he shot while he was shooting Halloween 2 with... Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance, including a scene where Donald Pleasance goes and visits Michael Myers as a boy in the psychiatric hospital. And he's sitting, staring out the window. And part of his dialogue there suggests that it's an act for the hospital. And actually, he's fully compass mentis with the intent to go and carry out more murders. But he's just pretending to be catatonic. So maybe there's an argument that he's got more going on in his noggin than <laughs> the later films suggest because he's inventive and he's creating that whole sort of um sort of turner prize winning corpse installation <laughs> with the um with the headstone and the bodies rigged up and cupboards rigged up to open and and he obviously enjoys the aesthetics of murder because of the way he looks at the chap that he pins to the wall he's a very sophisticated guy i think he's great He's basically, is he's wearing the boiler suit of an artist as well. I think he's just a sort of, um, I think he should host the new series of Art Attack on CITV. Be great. This is an Art Attack. This is an Art Attack. And yeah. it just piles of bodies. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah no, I, I think I think he does have some flair. Like you know, say, he's carried that gravestone all the way up to the first floor of this house and popped yes. it on the bed. Yeah. Um, and in the beginning, he puts his clown mask on before he does the murder. You know, I think we see a little, maybe that's the playful that's side. That's right, that's true. He's in a costume. He's in his Halloween costume, isn't he? I mean, the other good thing about the movie is it's very underpopulated. 
And again, that's a budget thing. People, again, we used to say about Attack the Block, oh, there's not many people in this block, are there? Because it costs money to have extras and to stage all that stuff. And you occasionally see little groups of kids running around. There's the occasional jack-o'-lantern on. But like now, if you went to a neighborhood on Halloween or in the modern Halloween films or in Stranger Things or whatever, there's a million kids in costumes, huge inflatable things. You know, even in E.T. a few years later, there's, you know, E.T.'s dressed as Yoda, all the kids, the streets are teeming with kids. But it's quite a sort of sparse Halloween in that neighborhood, isn't it, that makes it scarier, the darkness between the houses. I did want to ask if you've got a sort of a, have you got a favorite scene or, or something which, you know, every time you, you revisit this film, you're excited to get to that particular point? I think my favorite scene, my favorite moment in the film is probably one of, you know, it's either it's either the head tilt when he pins the guy against the wall or just the moment where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is in sharp focus on the left hand side of the frame when she thinks she's killed him post wardrobe attack and then in soft focus he sits up and starts moving towards her uh just because it's a um it's just an all-time great horror moment isn't it like deadly silent and and yeah. it's so smooth as well like he, he's like a robot it's like the terminator at that point i think the other brilliant bit that i like is the very very end I'm not sure whether this is apocryphal or not, but I'd heard that those final shots of empty rooms and empty spaces are just sort of short ends at the ends of other setups. That when the actors had left the frame, he had a few frames of just the empty space in front of the camera. And they invented that in the editing room, revisiting all those locations, seeing them empty as a sort of uh, way to imply that Michael Myers, even though he's not there, will always be there. Thank you, Joe. So we've got Halloween is now in the 90 minutes or less Very film good. Adding to our, uh, obviously, Evil Dead 2. We've got a few other horror films in there. Texas Chainsaw Massacre's made it in. Yes. Trick or Treat, Silent Night, Deadly Night. It's quite a gory bunch of movies there. Well, you know, when, when, when a horror film's good, you can't deal with it for too long, can you? And under 90 minutes is probably... Uh, around the human elastic limit for sheer terror. Sustained terror to a point. Otherwise yeah, it's, like, it, oh it's the Surgeon General's recommended dose of terror. You mentioned earlier you haven't seen this film at the cinema, but if, if I were to give you a, a, you know, a print of the I think I might movie, have seen it at the Prince Charles, actually. Or oh, it like feels that. like a good home for it. Yeah, yeah. For our festival, though, if, I, if you could choose a location uh, to show the movie and, uh, and put it on, you know, is there a place you'd like to choose? Yeah, and is there I'd any... show it at the IMAX. Oof. Because street-level films at the IMAX are really quite something. You're used to it being a venue for, you know, documentaries about whales or people who live on Pandora yeah. <laughs> or Tom Cruise jumping out of a plane. But actually movies that, are, that, that, that have a camera at human head height walking down streets when you put them on an IMAX are really powerful because it's like you're there. They showed Attack the Block at the um, IMAX once, and in fact, they're showing it again at the Science Museum oh, amazing. in a couple of months at the IMAX. And just the stuff where the kids are walking through the streets in surround sound is very, uh, you know, it feels like you're there. So that's where I'd put it. I'd put it on at the IMAX. Okay, we can make that happen. Maybe in 3D. Could Oof. we do a 3D conversion? 
I think the budget might stretch to that, but I'm sure we can call that somebody good, to do that. It? I wonder if any of them have been in 3D. There must have been. Uh, no, there were Friday the 13th, obviously, part three in oh, 3D yeah. is, a, is, a, is a masterpiece. <laughs> um, <laughs> I watched that the other day, actually. That's got some good moments. But yeah, that would be good. Post-convert the, fir- the first two. Then H2O, I think, is brilliant. I really like H2O with Josh Harnett. Yeah, but that's what I'd do. IMAX, BFI IMAX in 3D. Let's do it. We'll make it happen. World premiere of the 3D print of the movie. I'll be there. Um, okay, well, there you go. Okay, so listeners, you can look forward to that at our fictional uh, film festival. And you can also look forward to watching Lockwood & Co., which is on Netflix right now as you're listening uh, to this. I've only seen the first episode. I loved it. I'm going to be watching it. As this podcast goes out, I'm going to be sat on my sofa binging uh, the rest of the season. Good man. Make it through the last episode because... I direct the first one and the last one. Okay, we'll do that. And look forward, look forward to seeing where it goes. Yeah, and it's designed to be a good uh, family watch as well. It's it's probably 10 and up. It's rated 12 by Netflix. But if you've got a robust 10-year-old who's not uh, frightened of some scares, then it's a good family watch. There's one F-bomb uh, in episode three or four, but that's all right. There's F-bombs all over the shop these days. But other than that, it's uh, it's good family viewing. Well, thank you, Joe. And you can also um, check out your Instagram page, Mr. Joe Cornish. I've really enjoyed um, sort of following you, especially over the pandemic um, and, and seeing all of the clips from the Adam and Joe show. Well, I try and put like, um, I don't put just stuff of me on a beach on it. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to put old archivey stuff that I can dig up. Or... There's lots of great video and, and like really fun stuff and, and stuff. I, I don't know if it's it's all stuff that's been out in the world or if it's stuff that, that sort of never made it to broadcast, but it's, it's really fun to revisit uh, the Adam and Joe oh, uh, work. Oh, thank you. Uh, I watched Made in Manhattan the other day, which has Bob Hoskins in. And every time a Bob Hoskins film comes up, I can't help but sing and hum the uh, Adam and Joe Bob Hoskins With song. With Ray Fiennes and J-Lo. With Ray I Fiennes that and movie. J-Lo. That's a great movie. Um, Bob Hoskins is maybe slightly out of place. He's playing a posh man, and I oh, think Bob but. Hoskins is better when he's doing his cockney. But, um, yes. but the song's so good, and you know, uh, doing an independent film for tuppence an hour and all of this <laughs> great stuff. And I think you name-checked a Raggedy Rawney, Bob That's Hoskins, right. uh, a film he directed, which doesn't Raggedy get a lot Rawney. of airspace. That's right, with Dexter Fletcher. Yeah, no, it's important that's kept in the conversation. Please go and watch the Adam and Joe Bob Hoskins song, listeners. It's uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's it's such a good time. And thank you very much, Joe. Uh, appreciate your time. I'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or, if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.